Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, why Jewish humor is a mixed blessing. At least since the Enlightenment, and perhaps even before that, Jews have reveled in wordplay, in contradiction, and in self-deprecation, all of which have contributed to a robust culture of joke-telling. Ruth Weiss, who's a professor of Yiddish and comparative literature at Harvard University, delights in that culture. But she finds herself bristling at the assumption that Jewish humor is a uniform thing, regardless of time or place, or that it's uniformly something Jews should be proud of. In a new book titled No Joke, Making Jewish Humor, Weiss looks at variations of Jewish humor from Heinrich Heine and Franz Kafka to the Borscht Belt to Israel and to YouTube. Today, we're speaking with Ruth Weiss about those variations and about whether or not all this joke telling is good for the Jews. Of course, we also hope to hear a lot of jokes along the way. Ruth Weiss, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you so much, Sarah. You begin the book by relating a joke shared among your colleagues in the Jewish Studies Department at Harvard and an exchange that got you thinking about the nature of Jewish jokes. I wonder if you would share that joke with our listeners and your subsequent reflections on that joke. Uh, Sure. Well, the first thing I should say is that the joke was totally new when I heard it. And so when I shared it with my colleagues, I felt that I was giving them this gift of a brand new joke. Um, So it went something like this. Um, Four uh, Europeans are hiking together and they get totally lost and they run out of food and then they run out of drink. And in their desperation, the Brit says, I'm so thirsty, I must have tea. And the German says, I am so thirsty, I must have beer. And the Frenchman says, I'm so thirsty, I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm so thirsty, I must have diabetes. (laughs) So um, I thought this joke was quite wonderful, and so did my colleagues, and we had a good laugh. And then um, when they left the office and I was the last to leave, the secretary uh, asked me to stay behind And she said that this joke disturbed her. First of all, she didn't understand what was funny about it. And secondly, if we weren't Jews, she would have thought the joke was anti-Semitic. And, um, of course, this stopped me in my tracks. So I did think about it. And um, I, I thought that I could understand why she might think it was, because I think that what she was disturbed by is anything that artificially separates people from one another, first of all. So the fact that you would be talking in these categories and um, kind of um, uh, stereotyping people in this way, and then the Jew stereotyped at the end, why should the Jew be separated from these others? Why should one laugh at something that the Jew says? I think she was distressed by the idea that you could laugh at something that someone said as if you were laughing at that person. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, to some extent, the joke does laugh at the Jew who thinks on a different level than everyone else, right? And he thinks on a much direr level than everyone else and perhaps at a deeper level than anyone else, but differently from others. And I think that that idea of the separation, that the joke is about that separation, I think disturbed her. You observe in the book that Jews first became known for their humor uh, around the time of the Enlightenment, the Haskalah. Why then? What happened? Well, 
I think that uh, some people would trace Jewish humor back further than that. But uh, the reason I start then is but because I think that it's at that point that the humor of Jews begins to be identified as something distinctive to them. In Germany, uh, the Judenwitz, uh, the Jewish joke, was a certain kind of humor that was developed uh, mostly by converts, by Jewish, by converts to Christianity or by people who had really considered uh, conversion and who were very close to the Christian world. Um, And this humor had a particular bite, a particular sting. Now, it's not only Jews who may have practiced the Judenwitz. Eventually, that kind of humor became quite, you know, spread around, but it was a specialty of Jews. And um, they used it in a particular way. And why in the Enlightenment? Well, I don't like to you know, offer simple answers because uh, there are no simple answers to this complicated question as to why a people suddenly begins to think of itself as specializing in humor. But you can see one of the issues. Jews live on two levels. One level has to do with their covenantal relationship with God. The observant Jew, the traditional Jew, lives all his days, every day, and every aspect of every day, practically, under the aegis of the eternal judge, and um, judges himself by how well he's doing in that covenantal relationship. Well, as long as you live that way, you're living with the idea that you are satisfying God's will, God's directives. At the same time, you have to be functioning on earth, and the historical... um, Uh, experience of the Jews has not been so great on earth. Um, So that until the modern period, you sustain these two levels by various um, strategies. In the modern period, when you begin to wonder whether, in fact, the divine uh, authority is going to reward you for good and punish you for evil, when you lose that confidence in God's direction of the Jewish people, then the discrepancy becomes um, quite um, problematic. And I think that a lot of Jewish humor in some way relates to that problematic relationship Mm -hmm. between um, the promise and the actuality. And you can see that in the modern period, too, that gap keeps growing and growing larger and more frightening until, you know, in the, uh, in what English calls the Holocaust, you actually have it exploding in a horrific way where the nation that thinks of itself as being the most cultured in Europe, the Germans, go about annihilating the Jews who think of themselves as being special to God. Um, By that time, the tension has become... um, quite terrifying. And humor um, is a way of sustaining that tension or of giving voice to that tension in an acceptable way. But why would it not be acceptable for the voice of that tension actually to be grief or to be sorrow just outright? 
Oh, it is very often. And I'm so glad that you said that because uh, the tendency to think of Jews as a comic people is, is, is wrong. I mean, I, I think that it sentimentalizes the issue. Of course, it's very often uh, tragic. And more than that, um, something else develops in the modern period which faces the problem fair and square. I'll give you sort of the best example of this is when in 1939, when Ben-Gurion, who was then the head of the Jewish agency in Palestine, uh, was facing the issue that all of the Jews of Palestine were facing at the time. On the one hand, the British had issued the white paper, which was a terrible policy paper that essentially prevented Jewish uh, immigration to Palestine at the very moment when it was most necessary and favored the Arabs in a uh, new way and in a very brutal way, brutal uh, regarding the Jews. So on the one hand, you had the white paper. But then in 1939, when Hitler uh, started World War II, uh, of course, the uh, Jews of Palestine were on the side of the British. So here is how Ben-Gurion articulated it. He said, we have to fight the white paper as if there was no war in Europe, and we have to fight the war in Europe as if there was no white paper. Now, you see, it's also the same uh, paradox. It's also the same fighting on two fronts. Mm -hmm. it's, I think, it's also the same irreconcilable opposites, and yet it's not being handled through humor. Right. It's not being handled through humor. It's being handled directly. And he actually expected uh, Jews to be able to sustain that difficult balance. And I think that the Yishuv, the Jewish community of Palestine, absolutely did sustain that paradox. So I, I'm glad you said why through humor. Humor is one of the ways in which it can be handled, but uh, by no means the only way. You analyze the humor of assimilated or assimilating Jews, people like Heine or Kafka. But you also talk about jokes told among religious Jews that required knowledge of Jewish texts. How did you come upon that body of humor, and were you surprised at all to learn of it? I wasn't surprised, no. Um, but one of the reasons I want to bring it out in the book is because I do want to um, emphasize, as you suggested originally in the in the beginning of our discussion, that um, Jewish humor is many different things. It depends on what language is being used, um, and it depends on um, how much the Jews are invested in their Judaism. So there's tremendous difference between, for example, the humor of yeshiva students who command the texts and who find wonderful word plays in the text, but it requires tremendous knowledge of the specificities of the language um, and of what the texts are doing. Um, and the difference, say, between them and the comedians of the Borscht Belt, who uh, barely knew um, the Bible in some cases, who certainly had not studied the Talmud in most cases, whose Judaism was sociological, anthropological, but kind of thin. So um, there's a great difference between, uh, even in America, there's a great difference between the humor that you find, let's say, at Yeshiva University, and the humor that you find in Woody Allen. Um, the two 
certainly the yeshiva boys know about Woody Allen, <laughs> but Woody Allen doesn't know so much about the yeshivish jokes, and he wouldn't get them. Well, is there a yeshivish joke that you can share with us that those of us who are not so well-schooled in the Talmud might get? Well, um, or even if we didn't get it, let us know. <laughs> let us, you know then well, you can explicate it. For sure. Us. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. Uh, uh, let's say a couple. So one is um, a yeshiva boy goes to the head of the yeshiva and he says, "Am I allowed to go to the opera?" And uh, the uh, rosh yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva, says, "It's not over until the fat lady sings." <laughs> Now, the people who would laugh would know that the word oiver would mean that this was a navera, that this was indeed a wrongdoing, and therefore he could not. Yes, that's right, transgression, so he could not go to the opera. But of course, the phrase comes from opera, right? And it comes from, it's very, it's used as an American idiom. It's not over until the fat lady sings. So there you go. I mean, uh, certainly incomprehensible. Or another uh, joke about circumcision. Um, Now, you can see why there would be a lot of joking about circumcision because it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety and humor loves to address what makes you anxious. So um, the mohel, the circumciser, is in the process of circumcising this uh, infant boy and he makes the prayer over circumcision, and then he cuts, by mistake, the hand of the person holding the baby, and he says, Oi, a brocha levatole. Oh, a, a brocha in vain. I made a brocha in vain. <laughs> now, this is hilarious, because... I'm uh, laughing on the inside. You're laughing on the inside. Well, it is hilarious, because... Obviously, uh, the mistake that he made uh, is much more serious <laughs> than the mistake of a of a uh, of a bracha that has been made in vain. And um, of course, Jews are not supposed to make uh, they're not supposed to bless in vain. So it is a transgression to bless in vain. But you know, given the context, you can see the difference. And how much do we trust this mohel in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you see, these jokes are pretty hermetic. This mm-hmm. is so specific to the culture that um, people outside wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. In in No Joke, as you lead the reader into a discussion of humor during the Holocaust and under Stalin, uh, things take a darker turn, obviously. You quote a joke that survived the Warsaw Ghetto that goes, God forbid that this war should last as long as we are able to endure it. This is where you begin to suggest that maybe our ability as Jews to laugh at ourselves is not a survival mechanism, but might make us, in fact, acquiescent in our own suffering. Talk about that idea a little bit. It's really fascinating. Well, I'm not suggesting, actually, that one acquiesces in one's own suffering. Um, That has been an accusation that has been leveled against the Jews, but it's not one which I would ever level. Uh, it's not that one acquiesces. It's just that psychologically, I think that you begin to feel that it is your fate to um, tell jokes of gallows humor because you're always going to be on the gallows. And what worries me is that an excess of this kind of psychology, that an excess of this kind of acceptance of um, tragedy and of calamity directed against you Um, is sometimes not necessary. So I would never retroactively say about the Jews in uh, the Second World War that they went uh, 
like sheep to the slaughter. I would never say that because if you read their work and if you see their situation honestly, objectively, you understand several things, one of them being that they couldn't, by any stretch of the imagination, um, think that this could be happening. And uh, just to give you an example of how far they were from that, one of the Schlemiel jokes that I was originally interested in goes like this. A Jew during the First World War is walking um, um, in the forest and accidentally comes up against the border between two countries. And the border guard shines the light on him and says, stop or I'll shoot. And the Jew says, are you crazy? Can't you see this as a human being? For Yiddish humor, this was hilarious Uh because you can see that from the perspective of the Jew, the idea that you would shoot a person because he was on the right or wrong side of a boundary was preposterous. Uh uh, Are you crazy? Don't you see? I mean, I'm not an animal. You know, what are you doing? Uh, While, of course, we understand that it's the Jew who's being preposterous because, of course, he's living in a real world where this is exactly why people get shot for crossing these kind of boundaries. But if you are a people that is so removed from this reality of aggression um, of that kind, if, you are, if you're not imperialistic as a people, if you're always uh, accommodating to other nations because that's the way you have uh, been behaving politically, right? Your behavior politically is to move from place to place to see how you can fit in, uh, to see what you can provide in order to earn your sustenance and your living. How can you possibly imagine that people would go around annihilating another people. So over and over again in a ghetto humor you uh, and in ghetto memoirs, you see this surprise, this shock, this uh, inability to comprehend. It took so much time before people were willing uh, and able to fathom this. And you see for American Jews, it's very different. Uh, this is a benign society. There's absolutely no reason for Jews to cultivate a victim humor where it's not being imposed on them. And then a different strategy is required. And um, I think that that is a kind of a confusion that um, one ought not to nurture. But then if we look at the American context now, for instance, contemporary American humor is so much equated with Jewish humor, but we're not in a position of victimhood here. So what accounts for the strength of the Jewish comedic tradition in the current context? Well, I I think that um, one of the things that accounts for it, interestingly enough, I think, is the Borscht Belt, is the tradition of the Borscht Belt. I was surprised when I was researching this book. Uh, I knew about the Borscht Belt, um, but I was surprised by the um, degree to which that became an incubator, an absolutely economic incubator uh, for the creation of humor. Um, The Borscht Belt refers to these hotels in the Catskills, which became very popular for uh, New York Jews. And at some point, there were hundreds of such places, large and small. And um, each of them employed waiters and um, swimming instructors, all of whom were expected to engage in comedy. Uh, 
uh, because comedy was one of the things that the hotel provided. And some said that it was meant to take the guests' uh, minds off the bad food and the poor conditions, Mm -hmm. keep them laughing so that they don't think of these things. So here you have hundreds of young guys, mostly guys, because the girls were not expected at that time to be the humorists, although there were some. And what they specialized in is joking, joking, joking. Now, this is in the 30s. And um, this is just a time when radio is beginning to open up. And after that, television. And here you had hundreds of professional comics, you see, whose job it had been to cultivate this style. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, you know, that just spread into the movies, into television, because these were already the professionals and because it had become a specialty of Jews. And uh, and so um, I think that the sociological factor here, the socioeconomic factor here is very powerful. The Jews went into a field that was really opening up and uh, they specialized in it. So that's that's one of the reasons for that kind of comedy. And some of it is very Jewish and some of it is raunchy in not particularly Jewish ways. One of the you know lines I, that I quote in the book is, uh, what are the three words that a woman doesn't want to hear when she's making love? Honey, I'm home. <laughs> yeah. Right? Okay. That one I get. <laughs> that one you get. <laughs> right. But it still takes a minute yeah. right, yes, to put course. the whole scene together <laughs> in that way. Right. So, I mean, these are, you know, very worn jokes that comedians trade now, Ruth, you wrote a book for the Jewish Encounter series, which is part of Next Book, which is the parent organization of Tablet Magazine. And that book was called Jews in Power. In Jews in Power, you urge Jews to stop choosing moral authority over power at the expense of our own survival. You write in the book, misgivings about the exercise of power in self-defense retain an erotic and damaging grip on the Jewish imagination. Now, arguably, there are some parallels between that book and this one insofar as a lot of people who identify themselves as, quote, culturally Jewish are attached to the idea of Jews as as very moral, as deeply moral people and that they have a tradition of social justice and tikkun olam and so forth and also as a people with a very laser-sharp wit. I mean, this is like trotted out all the time. It feels like a cliche to me almost. But in Jews in Power, and now here in this new book, No Joke, you seem like you want to shake us out of our complacency and make us recognize that these identifications will not serve us in times of peril. And in fact, they might make us less prepared to defend ourselves against whatever dangers lurk out there in the world. Do you see any overlap between the arguments? Well, uh, you have found me out. (laughs) In fact, uh, I keep writing the same book over and over again in different ways uh, because I have been um, worrying the same issue Uh, from the very start. I wouldn't have known that my worry ran so deep, but the first book I ever wrote uh, was my – based on my doctoral dissertation on the Schlemiel as Modern Hero. And when I wrote about the Schlemiel, it was precisely the same problem. Here was a figure um, who was innocent and whose comedy lay in his innocence. So he was a kind of a fool. And the Bible and Jewish lore thinks very highly of this character. This is the Tam, 
the Tom is the kind of moral innocent. Um, now, in among the four sons of the Haggadah, the Tom is kind of a, a simpleton. But Hasidic life did much with the simpleton. The simpleton was considered to be purer than the intellectual at a time when intellectuals were running off and ceasing to be Jews. So on the one hand, one has a real um, sympathy for an investment in a person who wants to be moral above all else, even at the uh, risk of seeming stupid to the rest of the world. Because sometimes when you're too moral, people take advantage of you. And if you are going to be moral in that way, you sometimes have to be prepared to look foolish to the rest of the world in order to maintain your moral dignity. What becomes troubling to me is, um, firstly, when this fool is sort of sentimentalized, when it's not uh, a last resort, but when one actually thinks that there is something sweet about that kind of innocence, well, there isn't. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, being savvy and being keen and being alert um, is very important and that true morality requires action and requires discrimination and requires being out there in the world and and, and getting something done. So, um, so I, I worry about uh, the Shlemiel uh, as hero. On the one hand, when there's no other choice, then the Jew really emerges as morally sounder. But when uh, you are being aggressed against, and this is the situation that most bothers me, when there's a war against you, when you are being targeted more than any other people, and you're being targeted because you're good, you're not being targeted because you're a capitalist. You're not being targeted because you're taking over the world as you were. Uh, you're not targeted because you're occupying territory. This is absurd. You're being targeted because of the good that you do. You're being targeted because you have this liberal culture, because you are so life-affirming, because you have such a rich and enviable civilization. That's why you're being targeted. So... If you want to be moral as a Jew, you have to stand up for the Jews above all. And it seems to me that the greatest morality that a Jew can show is to stand squarely for what the Jews represent in history at any given time. You're talking in this instance about Israel. Well, I'm talking specifically in this case about Israel. I would say that in the last movie, <laughs> you were talking about the defense of uh, Jews in Europe. Um, to what extent did those people who were uh, in the Borscht Belt making comedy at that time, to what extent were they uh, aware of the, what was happening to the Jews in Europe? And what were they doing for them? To what extent was the comedy itself a way of acknowledging that there was some anxiety about what was happening elsewhere, but rather than actually deal with it, why not laugh it off in some way, right? But you yourself take great pleasure in, in hearing jokes and in sharing jokes. I, I absolutely do. And um, I would hate for the function of joking to be uh, canceled out altogether. I think that... Um, one of the things that we might uh, look to is Sholem Aleichem, who is, uh, to my mind, the greatest of Jewish humorists. And um, in one of the stories that he wrote, he finishes the story by saying that um, 
laughter is good for you. Doctors prescribe laughter. Um, now, there, something is very funny about that because this comes at the end of a story, which was originally a folk tale that was very funny, a Helm story about the foolishness of Helm. Only the way that Sholem Aleichem develops the story, it becomes more and more... Uh, problematic and dark, really dark, until the person in the story goes mad at the end, and it's as if the author cannot save the story for comedy any longer. And it's at that point that the voice of the narrator, the voice of the author comes in, and he says, now, you know me, I like laughter better than I like tragedy. So keep laughing because doctors prescribe laughter. You know, laughter is good for you. That made me think of something. Laughter is good for you, but doctors also know that there is such a thing as an overdose. So my idea of no joke is that one has to begin to know the difference between what's good for you, the laughter that's really healthy, and when you overdose. And um, believe it or not, uh, I worry about America in this respect that America's become very much like the Jews in uh, resorting to laughter. I mean, it's amazing the number of comedians who are looked to as the source of news. And it's almost as if you expect the news to be given to you in a semi-comical form. There's something disturbing about that. Um, I think that, of course, most news broadcasts differentiate between you know, what is straightforward news and people like John Stewart or Colbert and so forth. But I think that people of a younger generation get most of their news um, in this comic distorted form because comedy is a distortion. So um, I think America um, may be moving a little bit in that direction. And if so, I think the Jews uh, could be a cautionary tale Ruth, let's go out with a joke. What is your favorite joke, Jewish or otherwise? Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> no. no pressure. No, no, this is a, I'll tell you, this is a very unfair um, a question that you put to me because I'll, I'll, I will answer it with uh, an evasion in a sense. Um, once when I had begun to uh, speak about this subject, um, in the question period, people asked me, what is your favorite joke? And at that moment, my mind went totally blank. Not only could I not think of my favorite joke, I couldn't think of any joke. The only thing that came to mind is a line um, by the uh, very wonderful uh, Zionist uh, figure and writer, Shmariyahu Levin. Um, and he once said, uh, Jews are a small people, but rotten which in, in Yiddish, <laughs> I found this absolutely hilarious. Yidin seine na klein folk, nor paskudne, but rotten. There was such dead silence in the audience as I have rarely experienced. <laughs> People were horrified. Nobody understood the joke, and more than that, they thought I had gone mad. What kind of a humor was that? But you see, if you're in side the Jewish people, especially if you're spending all your life with this small people. You can understand how f that, you you know, you expect the term. Jews are a small people, but brilliant. Right. <laughs> Jews are a small people, but, you know, talented. But you don't expect it to turn. Jews are a small people, but rotten.
to boot. <laughs> so that's, I think that I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> Ruth Weiss, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Ruth Weiss is a professor of Yiddish and comparative literature at Harvard University. Her new book is called No Joke, Making Jewish Humor. It's just out from Princeton University Press. Dear listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what is your favorite joke, Jewish or otherwise. You can post it in the comment section of our podcast on tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so much for listening, and we sure hope you'll join us again next time.